All right, welcome to another episode of Exploring Minds with Bobby Mack. The object of this show is to speak to other philosophically minded individuals with an open mind as we explore life's big questions. And to help me with this episode, I am once again joined by the seldom equaled, never surpassed Caitlin to help me co-host this episode as we speak to yet another professional philosopher, Mr. Tim Burkhart, who's a philosopher at Duke University and uh, his first publication that uh, I would like to speak to him about is called Epicureanism and the Wrongness of Killing. Uh, so, Tim, how are you doing today? Good. It's a pleasure to be with you. All right. So, Caitlin, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Yeah. Good, good. So, uh, you talk about Epicureanism and the Wrongness of Killing. Well, before I get into that, I just want to ask you the same question we asked to uh, your colleague, Mr. Nelson. Um, how did you first get interested in philosophy? Uh, it's probably several things, but I think the catalyst was when I was 15 years old, uh, I read a book called Anthem, a short novella by Ayn Rand. Uh, you may be familiar with it. Maybe some of your listeners are familiar with it. And uh, I think that's what really kind of awakened my philosophical interest. Uh, it's not so much the view that Ayn Rand puts forward in that book that I found attractive, uh, although I did for a time. I've since gotten over it. But um, what I liked about it is it tells the story, as some of your listeners may know, of a person who really is kind of the only one in a cult who hasn't drunk the Kool-Aid, kind of. They're this sort of defiant individual uh, who asks too many questions and ultimately gets condemned by their society, which is really not unlike the story of Socrates uh, in some ways, right? And I think that's what I found particularly appealing because there's something liberating about that, that you can question everything, even in defiance of uh, public opinion or the powers that be. And, you know, Socrates, like Ayn Rand's character, um, are really willing to push the envelope, even in the face of uh, danger to themselves. And that's kind of what I liked about it, this, this kind of liberating questioning and this idea that anything is possible as long as we can find a good argument for it. Normally, that takes the form of when you're 15, punk rock, or <laughs> some kind of uh, uh, I'm not, uh, you know, some kind of rebellious boy band. But uh, I guess for you, it took the form of Ayn Rand's character. I mean, I guess that's the that's the classic story of like I guess Socrates, but also Galileo and Christ, and a lot of people who go against. Yeah, the I was going to say Jesus and Galileo. Are, yeah. Are, are similar in that respect, yeah. And by the way, I'm also a metalhead, so the, the music <laughs> is certainly there as well. <laughs> mm -hmm. What got you interested in death specifically? Um, after I finished my BA at the University of Colorado Boulder, I didn't go to graduate school right away. I had two years um, in between. And I spent a chunk of that time working at a cabinet factory, operating machines eight hours a day. And uh, I was kind of worried that doing that kind of work would be intellectually stultifying. So I would always... We got these two 15-minute breaks and a 30-minute lunch break. And so I would always read philosophy, sit in the car and read philosophy during that time. And it was an early shift, but in the morning before the shift, I would often uh, try and find uh, philosophy on YouTube uh, to listen to. And one of the things I found was that there's a YouTube channel called Yale Courses, some of you may know. Um, and one of the most watched, I think it's actually the banner for the channel, is uh, Shelley Kagan, who teaches a course on death on YouTube. And I, I listened to that. Um, I listened to as much as I could just, just before work every day before the shift. And I was fascinated by it. 
Uh, first of all, Shelley Kagan is just a first-rate philosopher. Some people think he's the best uh, living ethicist or one of the best. Uh, he's, he's really amazing. Uh, but then the topic I just found really engrossing for some reason. And when I got to graduate school, I had been doing work in other things, in theories of reasons for action, um, animal ethics, but I wanted to branch out a bit. And uh, actually, my advisors also suggested, you know, you should get away from some of the stuff you've been doing, not because it's bad, but just because it will look bad on the job market. And I thought, well, why don't I pick up death again uh, and see where that goes? And I started reading avidly about death. And yeah, I just kind of got into it that way. Uh, I've told Caitlin in our first episode that... I had the great fortune of being able to meet Peter Singer at a dinner party at, at, at uh, Yale, and Shelley Kagan was there. And I spent most of the dinner speaking with him, actually, because Peter Singer was busy talking to some of the other students, but I guess not as many people knew who Shelley Kagan was. And it was amazing. I mean, he sat across from me and my mother, and he was asking me what I, you know, I, I was studying philosophy for about five months at that point. And uh, he just asks me, so what have you read so far? Have you read Utilitarianism? What do you think about that? And so have you read, uh, have you read uh, The Youth of Fro? What, what do you think about that? You know, and it was amazing. I was like that he's talking to me. I was like 19 years old, and he's just asking me like about what I think. And so I went out and bought his book on death, and I, I read that. And I was like, this guy's amazing. He probably, I was already on a trajectory of caring about philosophy, but just the fact that somebody that important was taking such an interest in me, like catapulted me even further, you know. <laughs> Yeah, um, he's he's a phenomenal guy. I mean, and and hard not to like. I've exchanged. I've never had the privilege of meeting him, unfortunately. So uh, uh, you've got one on me in that respect. <laughs> I've exchanged emails with him, and he's he's just always the nicest guy and always willing to exchange ideas and and listen to to what you think. So yeah, I like Shelley Kagan a lot, and I guess we have that in common <laughs> that we kind of uh, got an interest in. Uh, it, you know, in, in death at least, or in philosophy generally, uh, as a result of his work. Mm. So, sorry, did you want to say oh, something? Uh, did you want to define Epicureanism, <laughs> since that's like a, seems to be your main focus at the moment? Sure. So, um, Epicureanism is named after uh, the philosopher Epicurus, an ancient philosopher. He was um, uh, a hedonist, uh, an atomist. Uh, but my project is not really a historical project. So when I say Epicureanism, I mean really just Epicureanism about death. Um, and Epicurus's views on death are probably what he's most known for. So when I say Epicureanism, I, that's just shorthand for the claim that death is not bad for the one who dies. Um, so that's how I define it, at least for purposes of this conversation. There's more to Epicureanism as kind of a historical view. But as far as I'm concerned in my work, it's just shorthand for uh, death is not bad for the one who dies. And I suppose I should say on this occasion also uh, what I mean by death, okay, because that's important. So I'm not, death as normally used refers, I guess, to a biological event, something like the vital functions of the body shutting down or, you know, something along those lines. And there's controversy about whether that biological event constitutes the end of our existence or not. Some people think, no, it's just a change of address. You know, you kind of go somewhere else, you continue to exist in some other form. When I say death, though, I just mean stipulatively it is the end of existence, right? So if you think that biological death results in us going to heaven or something, then I would just say, well, you don't believe in death in my sense. So when I say death, that's what I mean. It's the end of existence. And by the end of existence, I don't mean the kind of the process of going out of existence, which, you know, may be drawn out or short or 
you know, unpleasant in various respects. I mean the end itself. So the end of existence is something like the first moment of non-existence, right? Just in the same way that the vernal equinox is not the last moment of winter, but rather the first moment at which winter is over, right? So Epicureanism then to kind of pull it all together is the view that ceasing to exist is not bad for the one who ceases to exist. So what exactly does it mean to cease to exist? So for instance, with consciousness transferring or something like that, like if I can, I don't know, in the future, upload my consciousness to some kind of machine and then my body dies, does that not count as dying to you? Well, that's something I'm leaving open. So that's, uh, that's a question really in personal identity. What sorts of things are we? What does it take for us to continue to exist? Some folks hold a psychological view where you need to have some kind of a psychological relation to a future person. And depending on the details, that could mean that if your consciousness were uploaded to a computer, then you exist for as long as that com computer continues to exist. Other folks think, no, we're essentially biological organisms. Uh, you may upload your consciousness somewhere, but if your organism dies, right, if your metabolism stops, then you go out of existence. I'm leaving it open. I'm kind of letting people say, look, you define what you think it takes for us to cease to exist, and that's what I'm talking about. Because that, I think, flies in the face of a lot of objections that some people would have about death being bad or good for you. Because a lot of people view it as... Well, uh, well, what about an afterlife? You know, death could be good if, 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 you know, if there's some kind of Elysian fields, then I would be totally justified in killing you and sending you there as soon as possible. Perhaps. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, so that's why I kind of want to get away from that. So I just stipulate, you know, if, if there is what you call an afterlife, then the thing that brought you to that afterlife was not death, as I'm defining it, right? Because death is just something like permanent annihilation. Mm -hmm. So I guess the controversy is not on that definition of death uh, is not, is death really the end? Because by definition it is. The controversy would be, do we ever die in that sense or not, right? Because on some views, if you take, I don't know, like Roman Catholicism or something, there's just eternal life, right, mm -hmm. after you die. So that just means, well, they just don't believe in death in my sense at all, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that kind of gets the, the controversy away. I don't have to kind of fight with people who have different views about whether we continue to exist or not. So when you say death isn't bad for you, though, and you're, you're committed to that idea, then what, what do you mean by that? Or what's your thinking? Because, I mean, on its face, it, it seems like it's bad, or I'd, I'd prefer to avoid dying. I, I kind of like existing right now. I'd prefer to continue to have experiences. So when you say it's not bad for you, why not? Well, so let me again, at, at risk of being tedious, put just kind of one more definition on the table. When I say it's not bad for you, what I mean is it doesn't make you any worse off. Mm -hmm. So in general, for something to be bad for someone means that it makes them worse off in, in some respect, right? Um, and my idea is one that's commonly attributed to Epicurus, and so I'm happy to call it his idea, but historians of philosophy will disagree about how to interpret him. But he's got a passage which is quoted kind of ad infinitum. I'm pretty sure it's an unwritten rule that when you're writing on death, you have to quote it at least once. Where he says something to the effect of, uh, death, the most terrible of ills, is nothing to us, since so long as we exist, death is not with us. Uh, and when death comes, then we do not exist anymore. So on one way of reading Epicurus, he's saying, look, in order for something to be bad for someone, to make someone worse off, you need three things. Two of them are obvious. One is the event that's the alleged harm, the bad event, right? The other is the victim. You need a person who's harmed by that event. And then the third thing is you need a time at which the event makes the victim worse off. Now, for most bad things, it's really easy to fulfill those three criteria, right? Suppose I break my leg, okay? Uh, so 
there's the allegedly bad event, the leg breaking. There's a victim, that's me. Is there a time at which breaking my leg is bad for me? Sure, suppose I break my leg on New Year's Day and I'm in a cast for six weeks. So by Valentine's Day, I'm fully recovered. Okay. So I think the obvious answer is the leg breaking was bad for me, made me worse off in that roughly six-week period. Right? Because that's when, first of all, I felt some pain when on New Year's Day when I broke my leg. And then for six weeks, I couldn't do things that I normally like to do. I like to walk. I like to run. I like to ride my bike a lot. When my leg's in a cast, I can't do those things. So, you know, I have less pleasure over that period of time because of that, right? So there's a period where I'm worse off. We've got the event, the victim, and the time at which you're worse off because of it. But Epicurus thinks, look, and by the way, we could multiply examples, you know, toe stubbings, burning your hand on the stove, a nasty breakup, you pick, right? But when it comes to death, it's a lot harder to fulfill those three criteria. Sure, we've still got the allegedly bad event, the death, We've got the victim, the deceased person, right, the one who died. But when are they worse off? Right? Try to pick a time. Are they worse off now while they're still alive? That doesn't seem right. How could their death make them worse off now when it hasn't even happened yet? Right? Are they worse off when it happens or afterwards? No, because remember, death is the end of existence. Right? That's what Epicurus meant with when your death is present, you are not. Right? So for any time you pick, you either have a candidate victim but no harm, or you have a candidate harm but no victim, right? There's no way to fulfill all three criteria. So the Kagan objection to that, uh, I remember in his book he gives this uh, this thought experiment, which you may have remembered from his lecture, because his, lect his book is just verbatim from his lectures, um, where he says, imagine that your friend uh, goes on a spaceship to Mars uh, and is leaving forever, and you're never going to see or hear from her again. That would be sad. That might be a bad thing for you and that you won't be able to enjoy your friend's company anymore. But now imagine that your friend goes in the spaceship to Mars and as soon as they leave the atmosphere, the spaceship explodes and, the, and they instantly die. And your intuition would suggest that you feel worse in the second case than you would in the first case. Now, nothing changes for you because in both of those cases, you would never see the person again. But in the latter case, you still feel worse, which would mean that the worseness probably comes from the fact that something's bad for the person that instantly died. Why does it come from that fact rather than from the belief that uh, it's worse for the person to die well, and the belief is just mistaken? Right. So what he would say would be that it's bad because you're depriving the person of things they would have enjoyed had they lived longer. Okay, good. So really, the thought experiment doesn't do any work at all. What's doing the work is this idea that when somebody dies, they are deprived of goods that they would have accrued if they hadn't died when they did, right? So now the Epicurean question is, when are they deprived? They can't be deprived before they die. Deprivation hasn't happened yet, right? But once they die, there's no one left to suffer a deprivation, right? Who's deprived? It's just the same problem over again, right? You either have a victim of deprivation but no deprivation, or you've got a deprivation with no victim. I mean, well, didn't you? But I believe in the paper, did you say that, the, that there's still a victim? You just call them stateless? Yeah, and being deprived is a state. So there's no, they're not in any state of deprivation. Oh, I misread that. I thought you were saying that the victim is, there's, the victim is in a, is, is a, the victim is stateless, which made it sound like there's still a victim there. <laughs> well, we can talk about the victim, yeah, but there's no victim present, right? 
the victim is some some past existing thing that we're referring to. Like when we talk about Socrates, right? Socrates isn't present now. We can still talk about it. So, yeah, my, my suggestion or my claim in that paper is kind of parenthetical. I didn't defend it there. Um, but, yeah, I pointed out that when someone ceases to exist, they no longer, they're not in any state at all. It's not that they're like in floating around in some realm of non-existence, right? There, there's no one there anymore, and so there's no one who can suffer a deprivation. So let's now move from that into, yet it would still be wrong to kill someone. <laughs> okay, now one, well, I just wanted to get this hitch in the giddy up out of the way first, is that you say that you assume in the paper, I assume throughout that all lives are worth living. Um, so does that mean that you're only talking about the subset of people whose lives are worth living and that you're, that you're granting that there could be a subset of people whose lives are not worth living? Uh, well, I just wanted to leave out. So, I mean, let's go back to the, for a moment to the deprivation account, uh, that you mentioned, right? The deprivation account says that your death is bad for you insofar as it deprives you of good things. And that leaves room for the possibility that if your future is so bleak that on balance it's negative, right? You have a negative well-being. It's like it's worse than being unconscious. Uh, then the deprivation account implies that actually your death is good for you because it's depriving you of bad things, right? Um, so I just wanted to simplify the discussion by saying let's just focus on cases where lives are worth living because in those cases we have the we tend to, to the extent that we have the intuition, which I think most of us do, that killing is wrong, um, that intuition is strongest. If we go to cases like a euthanasia case where somebody is just suffering and there's no hope for them, maybe the intuition that's wrong to kill them is weakened, right? So I said, so let's just keep it simple for now and talk about the case where everybody agrees, and then we can get to the more controversial kind of euthanasia-style cases later, right? Okay. So that's all I was trying so, to do. So we'll save the uh, antinatalist view that all lives on, on balance are not worth living for later, I guess. <laughs> uh, yes, although I, uh, yeah, I mean, we can come back to that. I don't know if the antinatalist has to say that all lives are on balance not worth living. Mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah, let's come back to that later. Okay. So, so why isn't it wrong exactly then, though, for like if lives are worth living, then or, or sorry, if death isn't bad for you, then why shouldn't I kill you? Or even just like, why should we care about our own well-beings? Why should I just like not just like blindly walk across highways and stuff like that? Like, um, it seems like if that's not a bad thing for me, then why should I care? Well, uh, I think they're kind of two separate questions there. And my answer is going to be similar to, to both of them. But uh just to start off with, there are some ways in which Epicureans can very easily explain uh, the wrongness of killing, and they can do it by appealing to other affecting, what I call other affecting considerations, like if I kill you, your family's going to be upset or something, right? Um, so th that's easy, but that's not very satisfying because our intuition usually, I take it, is that killing is wrong perhaps because it upsets families of the victims and so on. And often, like at murder trials, you get the victim impact statement, right? So we do take that seriously, and I think we ought to. But I think our intuition is that killing is wrong primarily because of some facts about the victim themselves, not because of others, right? So that's the challenge for Epicureanism. How can you ground this wrongness of killing in the victim rather than in friends or family members or whoever, right? Um, so that's kind of what I'm tackling in this uh, 
in this paper is, can Epicureans explain that? Uh, and my approach is to say, yes, they can. We just have to make some distinctions. So first, let's distinguish between objective and subjective reasons, where an objective reason, uh, not to kill someone, for example, is a reason that's given by the facts, by the way the world actually is. If Epicureanism is true, then I concede there is no objective reason not to kill anyone. Okay, or, or at least no objective reason grounded in them. There will still be these other affecting reasons, like that you upset the family and so on. Um, but what about subjective reasons? Subjective reasons are reasons that are grounded in our evidence, in what we believe or have reason to believe. Right? Um, and I think Epicureanism is consistent with a subjective reason grounded in facts about the victim not to kill the victim. Okay, and I appeal here to a principle that I borrow from another philosopher, uh, Michael Humer, which he calls it the probabilistic reasons principle, which says, if the truth of some fact would give you a certain reason, then to the extent that you have reason to believe that that fact is true, you in fact have some reason. So an easy example is like a lottery ticket buying example. Suppose you walk into a bodega and there's some lottery tickets like on the shelf or on the rack or whatever. And you're looking at one and considering whether or not to buy it. And suppose that like, I don't know, suppose God just appears to you and says, that's the winning ticket. <laughs> In that case, I hope you'll agree. You have some reason to buy that ticket, right? <laughs> and suppose the jackpot is like much, much larger than the cost of the ticket, right? And God says, that's it. Mm -hmm. That's the winning ticket. Then you have a reason to buy it, right? Right. Uh, so that's the truth of a certain fact that this is the winning ticket, giving you a reason to behave in a certain way to buy it. Now, suppose more realistic case, you walk into the bodega, again, you see the ticket on the shelf, but this time God doesn't appear to you and tell you that it's the winning ticket. So you don't know if it's a winning ticket, but you still know that it might be the winning ticket, right? It's a fair lottery. One of the tickets got to be the winner. This one is as likely as any other one. So there's a non-zero probability this is the winning ticket. Mm -hmm. So if the fact that it is the winning ticket gives you a reason to buy it, then the fact that it might be the winning ticket uh, also gives you a reason to buy it according to the probabilistic reasons principle. It's a weaker reason, right? Like if it's a one in a million chance that it's the winning ticket, then maybe your reason to buy it is only a mi one millionth as strong as if you knew that it were the winning ticket. And one millionth as strong might be so weak that even the price of the ticket will outweigh your reason to buy it. But nevertheless, there's still some reason there. And so I want to apply the same kind of thing to uh, Epicureanism and killing. I say, if we knew that Epicureanism were false and that all lives were worth living, such that everybody would be deprived of good things by being killed, then we darn sure would have a reason not to kill anyone, right? And even Epicureans should agree that given their evidence, because we're all fallible, Epicureanism could be false. Well, what right? is that As, evidence, though? Uh, it's just our reason to, I mean, it might be many things, but one thing it might be is just epistemic humility, that yes, I've got all these arguments for Epicureanism, but maybe I went wrong somewhere. And when I kill somebody, and I just kind of cavalierly think, oh yeah, but their death isn't bad for them, so whatever, I'm playing with fire, right? I'm taking a huge moral risk. If I made any mistake in my arguments anywhere along the way, and Epicureanism is actually false, then I've done something really horrible to that person, right? So I should play it safe, right? I mean, that at least gives me some reason say, you know what, I better hold off on this. Because after all, if Epicureanism is true, it doesn't say it's good to kill people. 
Just as death can't be bad for you, the Epicureans say death can't be good for anyone either. So Epicureanism gives you no reason to, to kill or to really refrain from killing, right? It's just kind of open on that. But if it were false, you would have a very strong reason not to kill. So like if you're listing up all the reasons to kill or not to kill someone, the possibility that it's bad for them should go in the against column, right? And that possibility can be there even if Epicureanism is true. That's really the nub of my argument, the essence of it. Well, now we know that even if, thing, even if things have probability zero, they can still happen. I've so, never understood that, by the way. Maybe it's just my so failure I, to understand so, math. So, so if I say to you, I'm thinking of a number, what is it? There's a chance you could get the right answer, but the probability of it is effectively zero. Effectively zero or zero? It's zero. It's one over infinity. Okay, so it's not effectively zero. Okay. It is zero. Okay, it is zero. And yet there's a chance that you could guess the number that but, I'm thinking. But that means one over infinity is zero. So if I multiply zero by infinity, I get one. See, this is where I just, I've never understood. Okay. It okay. seems like if there's going to be a chance of something happening, it, it's got to be a non-zero probability, right? Uh, okay. Again, I'm not a mathematician. Maybe I sound like a complete fool to your, no. but I don't. No, okay. So, um, yeah, it's kind of a... It's messy because I'm dealing with a non-discrete set, uh, so it's not a it's a it's what we call an uncountably infinite set. Yeah. So you run into all these sorts of problems. Yeah. Um, it's uh, so let me let me think of it. Let me let me see if I can give you the converse and let me see if this this works. This example works better. So if I say um, I'm thinking of a number what number isn't it the chance that you get it right is one because in I, sorry i don't find that any more convincing because infinity minus one is still infinity there maybe i'm not explaining that right um, <laughs> no you're right i mean infinity minus one is infinity right so there's an infinite but, number of numbers that you could pick if i say i'm thinking of a i'm thinking of a number guess the wrong one yeah, but I might accidentally guess the right one, right? Yeah, so the probability that you'll guess the right one is zero because... It's still one over infinity. Right, I mean, I guess that's the... Yeah, that's, it's that's, the, that's still the problem, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, hey, look, I don't, I, but I don't know if anything really turns on this. I, I did talk in terms of zero and non-zero probability, you're right. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the end of the day, I can just rephrase it and say, there's a possibility that could happen, right? Mm -hmm. That's all I need. And, and we can, even if, we, even if I give you that the chance of me guessing the right number is zero, probability of zero, we both agree it could happen, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as long as it could happen, that's all I need really to get this argument going. I, don't, I express that as zero versus non-zero probability, but there's nothing in the argument that requires me to do it that way. Okay, but even if we stipulate that, I, I still feel like you're, you're suspiciously cautious about killing people in ways that you aren't suspiciously cautious about other things with the similarly non-zero possibility for instance like um let's stipulate that there's a possibility that plants just suffer immensely all the time because of you know when we walk across the grass we're just causing like tons of agony in all of the plants and right, that's horrible and like that that's possible you know like i don't really know what i mean even inanimate objects like why not maybe everything's conscious and capable to suffer um and so if that's true like we ought to be really cautious about how we interact with everything basically um but it doesn't seem I, I i'm inclined to think that you care more about killing people than like not walking on grass uh yeah probably because i think the chance that killing people harms them is greater than the chance that walking on grass harms why? them but well because uh, 
so I like Joe, I'm a hedonist, um, but <laughs> that doesn't even really matter. I think basically uh, people have at least the prerequisites to accrue good things and bad things, pleasures and pains, uh, and can therefore be, at least there's the possibility that they can be harmed by being deprived of, of pleasures and pains. Whereas I think grass doesn't even, it doesn't even have the, the prerequisites for accruing goods or evils. I mean, I guess your case is, oh, but maybe it does, right? And we don't know, yeah. Um, but so that brings me to my second point, which is my conclusion is not um, that we should be really cautious about killing people. It's that we have at least some moral reason not to kill them. And so the way that I'm tempted to respond to your case is, yeah, the facts you mentioned about grass, this possibility that it's harmed, actually gives us a reason not to walk on grass. It's just that that reason may be so weak that it's easily outweighed by something else. Who knows? But it's there, right? This is maybe where I should introduce another piece of jargon. Um, pro tanto reasons versus all things considered reasons, right? So pro tanto reasons are reasons that can be outweighed, right? Um, I don't know, the fact that killing somebody would mean that I'm not in debt anymore or something gives me a reason to kill them, right? But does that mean that all things considered, that's what I ought to do? Maybe not, right? So I'm just arguing for a pro tanto reason. We, we have a reason to some extent to behave or not behave in certain ways, not for an all things considered reason. Right. Now, going back to the other thing that you were talking about when you said that you believe that the primary reason why people consider death to be bad for you is because it harms the victim or because it's in violation of the victim's interests. Uh, I, I'm not so sure about that. Okay. I, I think that, I mean, there was a recent book that was very popular called Stay by uh, this Jennifer Michael Hecht, and she, you know, gives a history of suicide and the philosophies against it. And a lot of it seems to be that you'll harm the people around you. That, you know, think about your mother, think about your sister, think about all the people that you'll harm, you know. Um, and I think that that's a lot of times the um, guilt-inducing arguments that are given to people when they're considering self-harm or suicide. Or maybe that, maybe that just, it's just that. It's just that it is guilt-inducing, and it's designed to try to keep the person around rather than um, because, because, you know, I think maybe it's because of the case that if you, if you looked at the person who's considering suicide, maybe you would come to the conclusion that it's worthwhile for that person to end their life. Uh, indeed, you might come to that conclusion. And in that case, suicide would be at least egoistically rational, right? I don't say morally rational, because it may be that the, the harm that they save themselves is outweighed by that that they cause to others. Um, but at least as far as their life goes, it would be rational for them to kill themselves uh, on the common view, right? Not on an Epicurean view, but on the common view. I just right? wanted to see if you would, uh, w if you would uh, say that it could be rational for a person to um, end their own life on the... the oh, on the well, Epicurean uh, view, yes. I mean, I think it can be because I think we can make the same kind of argument. So uh, this gets back to, uh, Caitlin, to your, to your point about... Um, uh, why shouldn't I just run across the highway, right? I think the kind of argument I'm making about killing can be expanded to apply also to prudential reasons or self-interested reasons, which is that, look, if you run across the highway, yeah, if Epicureanism's right, and we'll suppose that getting hit by the cement mixer or whatever is painless, because um, Epicurus <laughs> would, of course, say the pain is bad, right? Um, yeah, then it's, you know, no harm done, at least as far <laughs> as the death goes. But maybe there's a mistake along the way, right? So there's at least this possibility that uh, you will suffer a great harm by being killed when you run across the highway. And 
so that again just like think about the lottery ticket right there's this possibility the ticket will win there's this possibility that you will be harmed by running across the highway that gives you at least some reason to think twice about doing it right but what is the nature of that possibility because I, I i'll admit i am kind of dumbfounded by like your just general argument that like there's no experiencing happening right and so like if that's the case then there is no suffering and so, I mean, if that's true, it seems hard to even conceive of a, a possibility or a way in which, like, you could, I don't know, make that work. Well, so, yeah, there wouldn't be any suffering. That's just the yeah. way the death, death is defined, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but as deprivationists are the first to admit, uh, there are bads other than suffering, right? What, what philosophers call extrinsic bads, things that are bad not for their own sake, but because of what they prevent. So the idea is that, yeah, you don't, right? I mean, this is just Kagan's argument. You, you don't suffer when you're dead. No possibility of that. Um, but if you weren't dead, then you could be, you know, enjoying yourself or accruing some goods and you're now deprived of those, right? This, this is uh, W.C. Fields' gravestone, I'd rather be in Philadelphia, right? And the idea is death is bad because of its opportunity costs, not because of the suffering. And so my approach is to say, look, that could be true, that view. I don't think it is true. I'm an Epicurean, but I'm not so arrogant that I think there's no possibility that I'm mistaken, right? Given my evidence, even as a dyed-in-the-wool Epicurean, there is a possibility that I'm mistaken. Uh, and if I am, then my death could deprive me of lots of good things. And Epicureanism doesn't recommend that I kill myself. It's just silent on the issue. And yet deprivationism kind of pulls against it. So on balance, I, it seems like there's something in the against killing myself column. Or if I have good reason to think that my future life is going to be very bad, this is getting back to suicide, then there's something in the pro-killing myself column, right? So I think Epicureans do have room for, again, subjective, not objective, but subjective reasons to avoid or seek their own death depending on what the future holds for them. So now how do we actually come to the all things considered reason from the pro-tanto reasons? That's the million dollar question. Because <laughs> <laughs> you said that we, we, we stack things up against one another, which I which I, I asked Mr. Nelson how he, Mr. Nelson, I asked Joe how he, how he came to that or, or how that could be done. How do you weigh up the hedons? And he said it can't be done in practice. It just can be done in principle. Yeah, or at least it's tricky to do in, in practice. Yeah, and this applies not just to hedonism, right, but to any view. How do you add up the, the prudential goods and the prudential bads, whether you think it's pleasures and pains or desire, satisfaction, or frustration or whatever, right? Um, yeah, that's a tough question. Um, but the common objection to Epicureanism is, look, if you're an Epicurean, then you just can't claim that killing is wrong because of something having to do with the victim. And so the point of my paper was to say, no, that's not true. They actually are consistent, right? Uh, my project is not to answer all the questions and figure out, okay, so when exactly do we have reason not to kill people, right? And what does it take to outweigh those reasons? That would be a full philosophy or ethic of, of killing. Uh, I just wanted to answer the, the kind of consistency challenge uh, and say, look, there's at least this pro-tanto reason. I make no further claims about how strong that pro-tanto reason is relative to others, and therefore I make no claims about what our all things considered reasons are. I'd like to know, but uh, yeah, I, I make no claims about that. 
See, because that's where I was going with that next was I was going to say, so you, so you talk a lot about victim affecting reasons. Um, do you think that victim affecting reasons outweigh other reasons? Uh, gee, when you ask the question that way, um, I think sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. I mean, I think, you know, take suicide. Let's suppose there's somebody whose life, suppose that they're correct. They, they judge that their future does not hold on balance uh, goods in store for them right? They'd be better off unconscious than living the rest of their life. And so uh, to that extent, on my view, they would have a pro tanto subjective reason to kill themselves. Right? Uh, but let's also suppose that if they did that, their friends and families would suffer, at least in aggregate, much more pain than that person estimates they're saving themselves. In that case, I think the other affecting reasons, that is the reasons having to do with the friends and family members, outweigh uh, the, their, uh, what in this case we're calling the victim affecting reasons, right, of that person to kill themselves. In other cases, they may not. So it just, yeah, it just depends on how the things stack up. There's no general answer to that. So if it's impossible to ever really, like, weigh the reasons, though, it kind of seems like, mm, hmm. It seems like you could never really make a meaningful decision then, right? Like it, like with the grass example, for instance, it, it seems like we're not really like doing a real, you know, like numerical calculation of the likelihood of grass being conscious and multiplied by like its potential suffering or something like that. It's just kind of our hunch or preference or like what we're already doing anyways. And so it, I don't know, like it doesn't, I guess I'm not really sure what I'm saying exactly, but like it seems like what's the point of philosophy almost or any of this if we can't ever like like really figure out that's that that's the billion goes. dollar question <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, no I mean notice I don't say that it's impossible to weigh up those reasons I just say that it's going to depend on the case yeah. and as Joe said uh, in practice you know we can't we can in principle assign like numerical values to it and make it like a mathematical equation that's very easy but in practice it's hard to assign those values um, yeah so practice is tricky uh, but I don't say it's impossible. I just say I haven't worked out exactly how to do it. And, you know, I, I hope that there's a solution. And that's certainly, you know, an avenue to, to explore. Um, I think, or at least I hope, that in many cases in our everyday lives, we have kind of, I guess what Rawls would call an overlapping consensus of reasons, that there are just enough reasons on one side that we can, even if we can't do the exact calculus, we can be pretty sure that this is the better thing to do. Um, but yeah, in terms of a kind of a rigorous philosophical view about that, uh, I'd love to have one, but I, I don't at this point. But that doesn't mean it's impossible. So diverging a little bit from that, so you did claim to be a hedonist. So you do think that the, 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 the way that we do that is by adding the total utility on both sides. Uh, well, utility is a general term for any good and bad, right? Hedons. But yeah, the hedons. The hedons and the Alvin Plantinga calls the he calls them terps, you know, like turpitude, you know, evil. <laughs> Yeah, so hedons and terps, that's what you, in, yeah, in, in principle, that's how you would do it, yeah. And uh, just another curious case about the hedonism. Uh, if you call yourself a hedonist, do you believe that all pleasures and pains are, as Joe would call them, commensurable? Uh, yes, I do. Okay. Not for the same reasons as Joe. We have a disagreement about what kind of hedonism we embrace, but uh, yes. Okay. So scratching enough itches is the same thing as uh, passing an exam? <laughs> that was the very blunt way that I asked it to him. I was like, you uh, scratch an itch enough times, it equals the relief of passing an exam. And he said, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, well, he said, I hesitated when he said, is the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry. but is equal in value. It's if, equal if in the, hedonic value. Yes, or could be at least, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I feel like I already kind of know how your answer answer this, but it's still worth discussing, I think, with uh, regards to, like, the rights of the dead. So, for instance, uh, I don't know, grave robbing or just generally being disrespectful towards dead bodies is that probably isn't wrong, I guess, in your view, as long as the family doesn't find out. Uh, well, let's, let's put it this way. I don't think... This is not something I've thought about a lot. Um, I don't. Th if Epicureanism is true, what seems clear enough is that we don't have any objective victim affecting not a reason not to rob a grave. But there may be other reasons not to do it. Maybe it reflects badly on your character. Uh, yeah, maybe the family will find out, right? Um, people can be upset by it. Yeah, but Epicureanism would entail that it isn't, at least there's no objective reason grounded in the interests of the dead person not to do it. There might again be a subjective one, right? If we think, well, by robbing the grave, maybe, you know, maybe posthumous harm is possible, and maybe I am causing such harm to the person's grave I robbed. Yeah. Now, when you talk about pro tanto subjective reasons, I feel that we could get into some pretty murky territory pretty quickly. So about three years ago, there was a mosque shooting in Quebec City. And if you watch the video of this guy when he's brought in front of brought to the police station and questioned, and he's sobbing and he's talking about how he thought that uh, Muslims were going to kill him and his family. And he just has this deranged view that that every Muslim that's coming into Canada is just a terrorist and, and they just want to blow up him. And his, so do, would you say that on that account, he has a pro tanto subjective reason to kill those people in his own like it, it's in his interests to kill them if he's worried that subjectively that they're going to kill him? Uh, well, I don't say it's in his interests to kill them, but could he, I mean, could he be informed in such a way, have beliefs that uh, would make it, in other words, if those beliefs were true, it would be rational for him to kill the people in the mosque. Uh, yeah, I think that's possible. So we could imagine a situation where it is rational subjectively for that person to uh, do the mosque shooting. Notice, that doesn't imply that there's no condemnation of the mosque shooting or any claim that it's morally good for him to do this. It just means, you know, justification can be cheap. Now, I feel that we, when we talk, <laughs> when we say that justification can be cheap, this is when we get back into the non-zero probability thing. I mean, I feel like... Um, like, I don't know if it was Hume or whoever said that, like, yeah, you drop a ball a thousand times, you don't know that it's going to fall the thousand and first time, so we have a justification to believe that the ball will actually float up into the sky. Uh, that doesn't follow at all. <laughs> yeah. We have a non-zero justification for that? Uh, no, well, given our evidence, there's a non-zero probability that the ball will float up into the sky. That does not mean we're justified in believing that. For example, if I, I mean, one of the examples I give in the paper, if you flip a fair coin, we have some reason to believe it'll come up heads and some reason to believe it'll come up tails, right? Because um, those, those are both live options. We also have some reason to believe it'll land perfectly on its side or something, right? Uh, but that doesn't mean that we're justified in believing it will come up heads because that's no more likely given our evidence than that it will come up tails, right? So just because we have some reason to think that something's true doesn't mean we're justified in thinking it's true. The reason has to be sufficiently strong, right? In particular, I would say stronger than any competing uh, reason, right?
So shifting a little bit, like, um, I don't know if this is something you've thought much about, but like, um, do you have any opinions about how like people handle their personal relationship with death, for instance? I, I would say currently in our society, most people don't really act like they're going to die, like even as like an atheist, right? Like I, I don't really feel like I'm going to die in my day-to-day life or like deeply accept that and act like that's true. Um, so do you think people should do that? Or since death is nothing to us, then maybe it's no big deal and we should just not worry about it? Uh Gee, yeah, so yes, I have not thought much about this. Um, I suspect you're right, by the way, that most people, you know, is it uh, Tolstoy's death of... Ivan Ilyich? Uh, Ivan Ilyich, yeah, who d- finds out and he's close to death. He kind of realizes for the first time in a non-intellectual way that he's actually going to die. I wouldn't be surprised if most of us are like that. I um, I can't say I'm looking forward to old age, but I'm, I'm looking forward in some intellectual sense to being very close to my own death or at least believing I'm close to my own death so that I can see, did I really believe it all along or not? Um, I don't know. I think epistemically, yeah, I think we ought to really have it sink into us that we will die someday. Now, does that mean we should worry about it? Um, yeah, I think Probably not. I mean, at least not for self-interested reasons. Um, as Epicurus put it, uh, that which causes no discomfort when present is but an empty pain in anticipation. Right. So it's it's just silly for you to stress out about something that's that's uh, you know not going to cause you any pain when it's there. Actually, there's a great scene, and I think it's Hannah and her sisters, the Woody Allen movie, where he's talking with his father about. Uh, you know, aren't you, aren't you afraid of death that you're going to die someday? And it's like, oh, who worry? his father says, who worries about such nonsense? You know, why should I be afraid? I'll be dead. He says, yeah, but, you know, you, you won't exist. He says, well, so what? I'll be unconscious, right? It's like, either I'll be conscious then or I won't. If I'm conscious, I'll worry about it then. If I'm not, then there's nothing to, nothing to get uh, excited about. Yeah, well, Ayn Rand, I remember, was asked this in an, interv- in an interview she did on TV once where the host asked, I don't want to think that we're just, because Rand was an atheist, and the host asks, well, I don't want to just think that I'm a corpse in a grave when I die. And she said, but you're not. He said, you, you won't die. The world will just end. Yeah, <laughs> this is Phil Donahue, right? I, I don't think it, that particular interview was Phil Donahue. Oh, okay. But because but, yeah. but, I've heard her say that, too, this yeah. idea, I will not die. It's the world that will end. And actually, yeah. uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein said... Um, it's very Epicurean. I don't know if he accepted that view. In fact, probably not, given uh, his religious views. But uh, he said, death is not an event in life. Death is not lived through, right? You don't, that, that's the whole point of Epicurus's uh, claim, right? It's the idea that as long as you're around, as long as there's a you, your death is not going to be there. So what are you worrying about? It's not going to appear until you are gone, right? You will never overlap with it in time. So it's, it's not worth your worry. Mm-hmm. Now you don't have you obviously don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but uh, I I suspect that because you're a hedonist and you're still alive, you don't believe in an Elysian Fields afterlife. What's that kind of afterlife? The milk and honey version of heaven that's found in the Quran or in the Bible. <laughs> uh, no, I think it's lights out and that's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So kind of related to my other question, like on a societal level, do you think that like, what do you think about the way that our society, current society handles death? Because like some would argue that we're, especially like I don't know, American society usually is kind of alienated from death. Like we're really uncomfortable with dead bodies. Like for instance, like if a, a relative dies and like, like you can take that body home with you from the hospital if you want, but like no one likes to like think that you can do that. And like people are kind of, I don't know, divorced from it. Um, and I was wondering if you had any opinions like on whether we should do that differently or not. Uh, well, certainly not expert opinions. Yeah. I mean, this is really not the kind of thing I think about. Uh, but I think, I think you're right that we are. It's even, you see it very much in our attitude towards war, right? Hmm. Casualties are just unacceptable, right? Even in the, I mean, if you compare the casualties that we've suffered in recent wars compared to World War II, where the United States got away pretty well in World War II. If you look at what happened in other countries, uh, my native Germany or the USSR, just horrific, right? Um, and, but now we've, we've become so sensitive to this that any time a serviceman dies overseas, right, it's, it's a big deal. And I, I don't object to that, but that's just something to notice, right? That, uh, to your point that we, we worry a lot about death in that sense. And uh, I find that interesting given that we're probably the most religious Western country. It seems like there's the people who worry the most about death are the ones who tend to have the beliefs that death is really just a change of address, right? I wonder how, how do those things fit together? But again, I don't have anything expert to say about this. That's just kind of my, my reaction. Yeah, uh, I remember one time uh, I had at, at one of my uncle's funerals, uh, one of my other uncles who was there was frustrated with the uh, service uh, because the person who was presiding over it, the, uh, the preacher, or I guess the minister who was giving the eulogy, uh, was speaking a lot about how we didn't have to worry because this, you know, he was in heaven and, uh, we, you know, we didn't have to, he was enjoying himself. And, uh, you know, after the ceremony, ceremony, after the funeral, <laughs> ceremony makes it sound like it was a festive occasion. After the funeral, uh, my uncle left and he was like, why don't we all just kill ourselves so we can get to the good part then? Uh, he was very dissatisfied with yeah. that explanation. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that is a, I sometimes wonder about that, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't really have much expert opinion to say about the, that either. I mean, I think that partially the reason why this, you know, well, we all know that the afterlife is an attractive view because it's self-preserving uh, and because, like you say, it's a change of address. But I also think some of it might come from wanting to comfort a child. I mean, if you could imagine as you're raising your child, there will be a point where he will he will, or she will ask, well, what happens after we die? And you really, really don't want to say, even though you may know in the back of your mind that it's lights out, you really want to come up with something that's more, ta more palatable for the kid. And I tend to think that that's a lot of the ways that this um, afterlife, in the way it's believed by the evangelical community, gets believed. Really, it's passed yeah. down from adult to kid at a very young age like that. And oh, well, that's a fanciful for sure. thing to want to believe. But yeah, is it to comfort the kids? I, maybe. Because I've always thought that, I mean, of course, part of what people find attractive in ideas of an afterlife is that they're not, it's not really over for them, right? It's just kind of, actually, the fun is just beginning, right? Uh, or the, <laughs> the unfun, depending on where you're going. But uh I feel like a major factor is also about friends and family members who you lose that, oh, they're not really gone either. They're looking down upon us, right? That makes you feel a lot better. I feel like that's a, 
a lot of the the attraction, right? Actually, even like beloved pets, I find this remarkable. People are like, oh, our, our dog is in heaven now. Um, but, you know, the animals that, they're, that they've got on their plates when they're eating lunch, they, yeah, well, don't worry about those, right? But the ones we like, they go to heaven. Like, it's so convenient and reassuring. Of course you'd want to believe it. Oh, that's good. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that it is a... It is an unfalsifiable hypothesis run amok to make people feel better about uh, their own mortality because, um, you know, <laughs> this may be controversial to say, but if you look at, uh, I'm not an expert on Islam, but there is a certain branch of Islam that was invented by the Prophet Muhammad to guarantee that his soldiers invented. Would <laughs> I say that that, that yeah. version of an afterlife was invented. Yes. Uh, I, yeah. that, I'm not disagreeing with you. I would say that's what you said. It would be controversial. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I would say that, that yeah. there was a branch of, an af of the afterlife that was invented uh, by the Prophet Muhammad to ensure that his followers would gleefully die in battle for them, yeah. for him. And, um, in fact, I believe that's the only circumstance in Islam in which it's actually guaranteed that you go to heaven, right? Martyrdom, yes. You Martyr die for the faith. In every yeah. other case, there's always this possibility that Allah will... Right, throwing yourself on the grenade for the... Um, right. Well, yeah. that, well, throwing yourself on the grenade would probably be, you know, if you look at it from... I'm, I'm sure that an evangelical Christian United States Marine who is going to throw themselves on the grenade to save a group of people would also think that that's an instant ticket for themselves and their family. Um, yeah, yeah, but that, not that it's the only instant ticket. Right? Yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Um, my understanding, I'm not an expert in Islam either, but that in Islam, that's the only instant ticket, mm -hmm. the only absolute guarantee. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, yeah. you're, you're dealing with kind of a weird um, type of person if they're um, looking down the barrel of the gun of the enemy and, and thinking that it's, you know, the, 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 the ticket to paradise there. Yeah. Although actually I heard about, I mean, this is maybe getting away from the topic a bit, but um, uh, a couple of years ago, when the, you know, the Kurds have women in their military, the Peshmerga, then they were fighting ISIS, that these guys in ISIS, and I don't know if this has any basis in scripture whatsoever. I mean, these guys can't even read, right? But uh, that when they realized they were facing women in combat, they would run away like hell because their belief was if you're killed by a woman, in defense of the faith, that's no ticket to paradise. That doesn't count. That doesn't count, yeah. Um, <laughs> kind of funky, yeah. I did not see that in my reading of the Quran. Yeah, that's, that's why I want to make very clear I have no idea whether this has any basis in Islamic scripture, but that was apparently... That yeah. was the idea among the yeah. ISIS. Uh, Although guys. I have not read the Quran in its original Arabic, so I yeah, who knows? Without without the consonants, right? That, that changes things. That's what yeah. that's what I'm told by scholars of the yeah, of the yeah. faith. Yeah. I'm I'm not sure. Or the, sorry, without vowels, only consonants, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure how I'm I'm not sure how true that is because I um I was going to ask actually that about Epicureanism. I was going to say that you brought up an objection to Epicureanism where you, uh, so, or somebody who objected to it. Now, was it an objection? Hershenov? Uh, he said that we need to make a distinction between death and the state of being dead. Yeah. And that death could be, was it that death could be bad for you, but the state of being dead is not, or the other way around? Let's... Uh, yeah, he's, he says that in order to meet Epicurus's challenge, you have to compare being dead to being alive or existing to not existing. Yeah, and his distinction, just for your listeners, is uh, death he takes is the event that takes you out of existence, if you like, the 
whatever the getting hit by the cement mixer uh the heart attack or you know whatever uh it's kind of the means and then the the result is non-existence what he calls the state of being dead yeah and he thinks that you have to epicurus's claim is that being dead is no worse for you than than being alive you because there's just no comparison possible between the two yeah that's hershenov now i mean as you would see from the paper i think hershenov's view is in some respects is a, i i wonder how stable it is um it's hard for me to see how death the event could be bad if being dead is not i mean apart from if you use death in such a way that it includes like the dying process which might be painful okay i could see how that can be bad uh but how the event of death could be bad in the absence of that if being dead is not uh strikes me as mysterious it seems to me they have to go together uh, I, I, I was just going to say that the reason why I bring that up is because I was wondering if it could be the case that the Epicurean argument is almost just a mistranslation or just not a mistranslation, but just Epicurus was not thinking about the difference between death and the state of being dead as two distinct things. It could have been the case that he was what he meant there was death being the state that, you know, the state of being dead that mm. you know i i don't really think that you can say that epicurus was was just making a distinction there <laughs> yeah i'm not sure either and that's why i said at the beginning how i define death and i made that parallel with the vernal equinox right the vernal equinox is kind of like the first moment of spring right mm -hmm. um and so i think that as i use it death is just kind of the first moment of being dead mm -hmm. right yeah, and I think any claim that you make about why death in that sense is or isn't bad can be translated into a claim about why being dead is or isn't bad. So I don't think the distinction matters. And if Epicurus didn't make it, which I, I suspect you may be right about that, uh, yeah, I don't think it matters either. So inverting things a little bit and possibly pivoting towards environmental ethics, since I think that's also something you're interested in, maybe. Well, like, so with regards to sort of stateless beings not being able to be harmed. What about the rights of unborn people? So like, for instance, if we, I don't know, destroy the environment and make things super terrible for future generations, but you know, it won't be a problem for anyone alive now. Is that something that matters? I mean, they, they kind of will have a time at which they'll suffer, right? I guess when they start existing, but they don't exist now, right? So it's, it's a little bit abstract. Yeah, um, but it can still be true that I mean, there's a wrinkle here that I'll throw in in a moment, but at least on the face of it, it can be true that our destroying the environment now can be the cause of their later suffering. Right. Yeah. So it doesn't matter that they don't exist now because with when we're destroying the environment, because they will exist at the time of the effects of that destruction. Right. So we still have the, the, those three things that I mentioned we need uh, on Epicurus's view a harm, destruction of the environment, a victim, the future generations, and a time at which the harm is bad for the victim. Well, that's the, the future life. doesn't really exist. Well, not now. Yeah. But they exist later, right? We don't really know that. Or like, and like, it is, is it matter that the victim's like non-specific, I guess? Or like... So this is where the wrinkle yeah. comes in. Um, I think uh, Derek Parfit, uh, one of my philosophical heroes... Amazing man. Yeah, unfortunately passed away a few years ago. But... Um, he had this idea, he said, look, it's very hard to explain 
our responsibilities to future generations. Because how we act now will affect who those people are going to be, right? So if we have an environmental policy where we just burn fossil fuels recklessly, then the environment will be destroyed and there will be people in the future uh, with lives that, let's say, are mediocre. Uh, whereas if we switch to, you know, we do the Green New Deal or whatever it is, and everybody's on wind and solar and nuclear, and the environment's great, then we get some people in the future who live lives that are better than the lives that would have been lived on the fossil fuel burning policy. But when you have a major change in policy like that, People are going to do different things. They're going to meet different people. They're going to have sex and have children with different people. And the future generation is actually different. So it's not true of either set of future generations that these very people would have been better or worse off had we acted differently, right? Had we acted differently, they would not have existed at all. And somebody else would have existed instead of them. And so we can't say that anybody's worse off. And now Parfit still had the intuition, surely we shouldn't destroy the environment. <laughs> but it's hard to explain that in person-affecting terms, right? It's hard to point to someone and say, look, that person 100 years from now would have been better off if we had acted differently. Because the likely answer is if we had acted differently, that person would never have come into existence in the first place. Yeah. So that's a, that's a puzzle. I don't know how to solve it. Um, yeah, but it's a very interesting Kind of well, I guess maybe, for, you, yeah. maybe you could resolve it in, in thinking that regardless of who it is, there will be an amount of hedons that will be impacted by this, mm. right? So regardless of the body which experiences those hedons, there's a hedonic value that's going to be altered by what you do to the environment. Uh, yes. So we can go, uh, we can get away from what's called a person affecting explanation and just say, look, the world as a whole will have more hedons if we act this way than that way. Um, and Parfit recognized we can go that way, but that leads you to what's called the repugnant conclusion, uh, which uh, is kind of a, a related puzzle that uh, Parfit mentions in kind of his monumental work, Reasons and Persons. The repugnant conclusion is this idea that if we move away from a person-affecting explanation of, of why we should or shouldn't destroy the environment or whatever kind of policies we should have in place, uh, if all that really matters is total number of hedons, then the best world that we could create would be one that's just teeming with people, billions and billions and billions, all of whose lives are just barely worth living. Right? Because when you add it all up, it's a huge sum. Right? And, but that's supposed to be repugnant. The idea is, well, isn't it better to have a world with fewer people whose lives are much better uh, than to have this world that's teeming with people whose lives are barely worth living? Uh, and not everybody, some people are willing to embrace that. They say, hey, guess what? The repugnant conclusion is the world we actually live in. Billions and billions of people whose lives are just barely worth living. Uh, so it's not that foreign. It's actually the status quo. That's where we're at right now. But most philosophers say, yeah, that's kind of icky. And we can avoid it on a person-affecting uh, view. But then we have that puzzle with the environmental policies again. So we want to get rid of that. We can move to a just add up utility view, but then we get the repugnant conclusion. So it's kind of like, you know, a rock in a hard place. And the trick is to find a, a theory that solves both problems at once. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, I think that uh, I, I could be misremembering Parfit's argument. But for example, if you had 50 people who are experiencing two hedons each, that's 100 total hedons mm. versus 100 people who are experiencing one hedon each, still 100 hedons, then I believe he takes as an axiom that more people makes it be means it's better. 
Uh, so that that to me is where I thought that his argument fails, is that if the total number of hedons is equal, then we go with the world with more human beings. Uh, that is... But I could be wrong about that. Yeah, so I what Parfit does, he says, suppose you have two worlds where um, we'll start with each has 100 people and they, uh, I don't know, let's say they each have a life of, uh, say, 10 hedons each, so it's 1,000 in each world, mm-hmm. right? But the second world has an additional 100 people whose uh, lives have nine hedons each, okay? He says that second world is no worse than the first. That's his claim. They, they each have, uh, what is it, 10 people with 100, right? But then the second one just has some additional people whose lives are still very good, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you move to a third world where uh, you've got, 200 people, like you do in the second one, um, and I shouldn't have picked 10 and 9, but the idea is that they have, their well-being levels are all equal, and the average is higher than in the second world. So it seems that that third world is better than the second. The second is no worse, at least, than the first. But if we keep doing this, right, the, the pattern is we keep getting more people, and on each step of the way, each world seems better or at least no worse than the one before it. But by the time we get to the end, we've got the repugnant conclusion. So where do we get off the bus? Right? Okay, yeah, I think yeah. I was, I think I, I, I remember reading the Wikipedia article and seeing the bar graphs that he, de- that he wrote. Yeah. The, but I, yeah, so he says more people is no worse if it doesn't uh, reduce the well-being of the existing people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's his claim. And that gets you sliding on the slippery slope. And at the end, you've got the repugnant conclusion. <laughs> yeah. So I guess we will come to antinatalism. Yes. <laughs> Good. Natural, it's this, nice. it's this uh, thing that we just can't seem to get around, and it we have to keep it. Yeah. This it's a very interesting. Can I just say, actually, my first ever philosophy paper that I wrote when I was a freshman in college was defending the view that it's unethical to have children. So antinatalism kind of goes back for me to to my philosophical roots. So I'm always happy to talk about it. Okay. Still hold that view. Um, I think I'm still emotionally an antinatalist. I have a really kind of a visceral dislike of human reproduction. But I don't think <laughs> not, that... Not the act that leads to human reproduction, just human reproduction. Oh, sex is fantastic, <laughs> yeah. But uh, use, you know, use contraceptives or whatever. Um, yeah, it's just bringing people into existence. I, I, I have a very negative attitude towards. But uh, can I defend the argument that I gave at that time in that paper? No, and I think it is a challenge to really give any coherent... Um, at least victim-affecting antinatalist argument. So, you know, emotionally I'm there, but I don't know if I can rationally justify it. Interesting. But, okay, why do you have an aversion then in the first place to, to like, humans reproducing if you can't justify? Or what do you mean by that? Well, uh, I, I don't know. You know, that's a good question. Why do I have an aversion? Because I used yeah. to not. Actually, at the time I wrote that paper, I didn't. I actually had an aversion to the view I was defending. I didn't want it to be true, but I didn't see how, and then it kind of flipped for me. Um, I think, and I don't know if this is going to be too much like a a therapy session, but um, I I think ultimately I just place far higher value on romantic love than parent-child love. Hmm. And I feel that if you meet somebody with whom you'd be willing to have children, then that person 
is must be very important to you and you should just want to spend as much time with them as possible and not put them on the back burner because you're both raising kids. I mean, like if Romeo and Juliet had become mom and dad, that would have been just the biggest buzzkill ever, <laughs> right? Star-crossed lovers turn into mom and dad. It's just such a waste. I guess that's just how I feel emotionally. And I think that's the, that's the root of the, the aversion, yeah. So do you blame, so you blame divorce on kids? <laughs> I don't know if I can say that generally, but there certainly are cases where that happens. I mean, I've had friends who said, you know, that their, their parents used to get along great uh, and had a lot in common. But then when you spend 18 years raising a kid together, you don't have as much time for each other. They kind of drift apart by the time they're empty nesters. It's like, do we even know each other? Like, what do we have in common? And it just doesn't really work anymore, you know. Um, so I think there certainly are cases where... Uh, having kids is a cause of divorce, but that's certainly not universally true. So, uh, again, I you know, don't want to make broad statements about it, but it happens. So, if we're talking about uh, antinatalism, well, first let's. I remember in Shelley Kagan's book Death, where he was talking about suicide, he gives a couple of different graphs of like hedons over time. And tries to see like, oh, well, look, the area under the curve is negative at this point. So it would be rational to end your life or, you know. And uh, he shows he showed two graphs where start at birth zero, zero. And you go upward with a slope of one. So with the course of your life, it gets better and better and better at mm. a certain rate. And then he gives another graph where you have you start at zero comma a hundred and you go down at a slope of negative one so your life gets worse and worse and worse but the area of both graphs is the same right so total well-being is equal but yeah the, the trend have, is different in one do, case it gets better every year and then it gets worse every year right? do you have an intuition that one is better than the other even if you're a hedonist um well i mean my knee-jerk reaction of course is that the upsloping <laughs> life is better what he calls the horatio alger life right and the other one is the algers horatio um <laughs> Yeah, that's my intuition, but can I rationally justify that? No. I mean, it seems to me both lives have equal value. It's just that we tend to have this, um, we tend to have a temporal bias, right? We prefer goods in our future and evils in our past. And the, the Alger's Horatio life kind of runs afoul of our preference structure in that respect, right? Because it puts fewer and fewer goods ahead of us and more and more behind us. Right? Um, yeah, rationally, I have to say those lives are equally good. Okay. But but this is I mean you were saying sorry about about suicide right that it seems like in some people might be tempted to say well you should quit while you're ahead with that second <laughs> life right kill yourself now while it's as good as it can be whereas with the second one we don't say that because it keeps getting better um, yeah I think that's a common Ben Bradley another philosopher of death calls that the the James Dean effect where uh, people judge whether some future part of their lives worth living or of anybody's life is, is worth living and whether suicide is rational based not on how good the life is at that time, but on the trajectory. It's called the James Dean effect because he imagines two lives for James Dean, one where is his actual life, the other one is uh, he doesn't die in whatever it was, a car accident, I think, right? And he he lives on for more decades, but it's his well-being is just like one. It's like just above zero. People erroneously judge that the life where he dies in the car accident is better hmm. because what follows it uh, is worse than what's preceded it, even though it's still worth living, right? Yeah, so our intuitions are really sometimes questionable in these kinds of cases. 
Well, yeah, I guess there's a bias to optimism there. It's like if you're diagnosed with some terminal, terrible disease like ALS and you, uh, well, I guess ALS isn't in itself terminal, but um, if you're diagnosed with some horrendous disease and you just hold out hope that there will be some miracle cure discovered the next day, right, even though you can pretty justifiably believe that your life is going on a downward trajectory and that the sum of the hedons will be negative. Um, if eventually, but that's the thing, like it may be a downward trajectory, but you're still well above zero. Right. So even if you're above zero, but if you, so, okay. So even if you're <laughs> currently above zero, but you made a graph of your trajectory of what you believe to be your trajectory and the area, the total area would be negative. Would it be rational at that moment in time? to end your life. So you're imagining that if I don't end my life, then the, the total value of my life will go below zero. Yes. Yeah. Well, again, as, as an Epicurean, uh, <laughs> I can only say at best you have a subjective reason to do that, not an objective one. Uh, because the flip side, as I said, of Epicureanism, that, that death can't be bad for you is that it can't be good for you either. But on the prevailing deprivationist view, it seems like the answer has to be a clear, yeah. I mean, assuming your beliefs about this are justified, if we just grant that, that in fact it is true if you don't kill yourself now your life will have an overall negative value um it seems deprivation is going to have to say yeah you should kill yourself at least for egoistic reasons it may be that you should stay alive anyway because again of considerations about others but as far as your well-being is concerned you have a reason to kill yourself i think that would be their view i think that's certainly what kagan would say yeah likely were you going to say something I just, I just think this, like, hedon math is kind of absurd, <laughs> but I'm not a hedonist, so. Uh. Well, but look, for, for any theory of well-being that you accept, even if it's not hedonism, we could construct a similar case, right? Hmm. So if you prefer desire theory or an objective list theory, just pick whatever you think is good and whatever you think is bad, and then we'll stipulate it so that if you don't kill yourself now, the bads will greatly outweigh the goods. Well, it doesn't have to be pleasure and pain. It could be something completely different. But I think experiencing reality for what it is, no matter what it is, has some level of inherent value. So, like, that's not something that could necessarily decrease over time. Okay, but there might be other things. I mean, I presume you don't hold the view that experiencing reality is not just good, but so good that no matter what the content of the experience is, it's always worth doing. Kind of. Yeah. Really? How are we defining good? Uh, just whatever makes... Live, like, the like thing that you would want for its or, own sake. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's Surely right. there could be enough bad enough in a life that, that although it's good to experience yes. reality, that good is outweighed by the bad. That's possible. Perhaps. Yeah. I, I don't know. Like, yeah, I'm not sure. Um, like, I know that sounds weird, but like, I just like, I think suffering is kind of valuable and that there's like a way to interface with suffering that isn't like bad, I guess, in the same way that you would traditionally think of it but so you think presumably suffering is valuable because of how you grow from it or something, something right, right exactly. not in itself probably. Right? well yeah. yeah probably not um yeah, yeah. The argument that I gave you, I remember, was I was going to say, well, if you take that argument too far, then could I just sort of lock you in a basement for a little while and just, you know, because I know that you'll grow from it. So right. <laughs> I, I, mean, like, I don't know if you can justify like doing bad things to others, but I think I feel like, right. And I don't even think you can justify like, 
I think you should still try and like avoid bad things when you can. But I think when bad things like do happen, there's like kind of a way to be present with them with like dignity in a way that kind of uh, avoids a lot of this like suffering kind of that you would otherwise experience. And so if it's more like kind of intrinsically like based, then I don't really know if like bad things happening to you is has to be bad or has to be like a big problem to make your life not worth living. I subscribe to the Kagan moderate container theory. I think he calls it like your, your body is your container is, or or your, 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 yeah, I think that's what he calls it. Your, your body contains you. Uh, so he calls it the, the, the val there's like three different container theories. One is like the fact that you're alive itself is worth nothing in hedons. And then the infinite container (laughs) theory is that your body or the fact that you're alive is worth an infinite amount of hedons and there's no amount of suffering that would justify you dying. And I'm like, well, I'm willing to assign, I'm willing to assign a constant number of hedons to the fact that you're alive. Like, let's call it a hundred hedons. Just by being alive, a hundred hedons, here you go. That's for free. But uh, (laughs) Mm. then then it's kind of like, uh, then... It's like the y-intercept of a, of an <laughs> equation, right? We just start out with that, and then we vary it, you know, based on our experiences from there. Right. Okay. Oh, interesting. <laughs> <clears throat> so you, one one of the one of the question about the antinatalism. So you said that you have that emotional reason involving romantic love, or that you you that you that emotional subjective reason that you believe it's wrong to bring new beings into existence. Uh, because of your, I guess, I don't know what you would call well, it. Well, I, I don't even have really the emotion that it's wrong. I was just reporting that I think, yeah, I have an aversion. Like when, when people are like, yay, I'm pregnant or my significant <laughs> other is pregnant. I don't see why it's something to celebrate. <laughs> people you sell- say, you know, pregnancy is a miracle. Well, so you know, awful. you know. <laughs> If pregnant, it's really any placental mammal where pregnancy is not possible would have died out by now, right? So this is not really the threshold for what constitutes a miracle is pretty low if pregnancy isn't. And it's happened literally billions of times before. So I just don't see what's being celebrated. Like, oh, yay, another person. We've never had one of those before, right? I, I just don't. I just don't get it. Yeah. I suppose it's good. You, you, you're, you're supposed to be happy for the mother, not for the child. Uh, right. Yeah, like, and I, that's see, that's also what kind of bothers right. me. Is like people are like, oh, I, I want kids, so I'm going to have kids. Like, well, but this isn't just about you. You're bringing a new individual into existence, and you know, all this life is a mixed bag, right? And all that stuff they're going to have to go through. So how about that? I mean, that's a that's a pretty major decision that you know I'm gonna I'm gonna start one of those up, and we'll see. Maybe it'll be a life that goes well, and maybe not. I think as as Joe said in the uh, in that last episode, he, he said you know parents will kind of hope that on balance the hedons will the <laughs> the kid will break even over the course of its life, but you never know, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he said, like, as you're holding your infant child in your arms, the first thing that comes to your mind is, I really hope that the hedons outweigh the, the Dolores or whatever. Yeah, but see, that that the tragedy is, of course, that's not what's on anybody's mind when they're holding their child. They're just like, yay, it's a little version of me. It's like, no, it's not. That's a completely distinct individual. All right. 
I mean, I feel like a lot of parents though think that like their kid is going to live a good life or just want that for them. Of course, they yeah, yeah. they want that for them. Right. Yeah, so yeah. it's kind of they're not thinking about it on hedons because they're not weird like that. But like yeah. you know. Well, but again, yeah, yeah. just substitute hedons for whatever you think is right. good or bad. Yeah. Well, if you ask someone why they want kids, the reason will always start with I. <laughs> I want. Yeah, yeah. I guess that. Yeah. So let me let me rephrase that. Uh, if you ask a, if you ask a parent why do you think it's important to have kids, the reason will start with I want. Hmm. <clears throat> yeah, maybe. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, I also think that parents don't often think about. Well, this child could be alive a hundred years after I die. You know, it's not just there for the time that I'm taking care of, care, taking care of it. I mean, it'll be here, and its descendants will be here for potentially thousands and thousands of years. I feel and like it's, they do think about that and just really like that. Fact. Oh well, yeah. yeah. Well, there's certainly the case that yeah, I, I yeah, I, yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah, there, there's that. But I get uh, well, whether that's selfish this, or not is a different. It's question. It's just eternal that's optimism. That, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, John Cleese said it well. He said. Um, you know, kids are great and you do love them, but uh, they cost a fortune. You worry yourself sick over them, and then they grow up to be like their mothers. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, you can ignore the sexist smear at the end. But, um, yeah, I think I wonder if parents misjudge what, what they're getting into when they have kids. I, I, I don't know. But. Oh, I definitely think so. I mean, and I think that my parents were about as, as, good, as, they, as, as good as could be. And I still Same, yeah. and, I, and I still think like, well, wait a minute. So what? What was the conversation like when you thought about this major decision that you were going to introduce into my childhood, like my, like my religious upbringing? How did you decide that this was going to happen? Did you sit down and did you have like a long? No, I could imagine that the conversation went something like, "I hey, feel good to you. Yeah, it sounds about right. Yeah, okay, let's do that." And that was the extent of the conversation about what to, you know, my religious upbringing was going to be like. It was not a sort of thorough philosophical investigation. Right, and yet it has a huge impact on your yeah. life, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I guess that's kind of what I'm getting at is that I feel like there's this kind of uh, lack of proportion, it seems to me sometimes, between the kind of how momentous a decision this really is and how much goes into it, which is not to say that people decide to have kids at, you know, the flip of a coin. And they have, like, they sometimes often. Fit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes it's an accident, right? And yeah, sometimes they do. But. But even in the best cases where parents are deliberating a lot and, you know, they're, they're getting their home ready for, to start a family, even in those cases, I mean, it's, it's a whole life, for goodness sake. Yeah. You know, how could you put enough deliberation into this to kind of match it? Yeah, Louis C.K. Uh, had, a, had a stand-up bit where he, when his wife wanted a second kid, he didn't want to have a second kid at, at first. And, you know, all his wife had to do was say, like, hey, could you be home this weekend? I'm ovulating. And he didn't want to have a second kid, but it's like he didn't really have a say. It's like he gets home and, you know, he just wants to have sex with his wife. And he's like, and eh, now she's pregnant, <laughs> you know? It's oh, like, come on. I feel like that was definitely a choice. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think it was a choice. Yeah. It was a choice. It was a it was a choice. I'm, yes, absolutely. It was a choice. And I think that in large part it was a joke. But uh, <laughs> the, the, the it was it's it's funny because it illustrates a point that the degree to which a lot of times people do not think about having kids or they don't think about the um, the consequences of getting getting each other's rocks off unprotected yeah. you know that that seems pretty irresponsible to me <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> well, hey, if you think about the fact that I think I read this once, it's something like eight out of 10 bank robbers have no plan for what to do after they actually rob the bank. <laughs> I mean, this is going to translate to other areas in life, right? <laughs> now, I don't want to get into discussions of that there are certain people who are fit to have kids and others who aren't, because that seems like another slippery slope, though. <laughs> I've been more comfortable saying, you know what? No one's fit to have kids than saying some are and some aren't. That's actually how I first had this idea when I wrote my first philosophy paper. It was in English class. We were reading Brave New World. And as an essay question, the, the question was, you know, should some people not be allowed to have kids, people with severe heritable disabilities? And my knee jerk was, yeah, they shouldn't be allowed to have kids if they've got these serious disabilities. And then I thought, well, but wait a minute, why not? <laughs> and my intuition was, well, because their lives are not going to be good of, of these kids. And then the next step was just, well, I think any of our lives are good. <laughs> Maybe nobody should have kids. And that's kind of where, where it came from. Um, although the argument that I made didn't actually depend on lives not, not being good. And actually, the most, mm -hmm. probably the most prominent antinatalist is a South African philosopher named David Benatar. Mm -hmm. uh, he's got a book. It's called Better Never to Have Been, The Harm of Coming into Existence. It's one of my favorite books in, in philosophy. It's, it's a lot of fun to read. Um, and he's got two arguments. One is this kind of pessimistic argument that no matter what theory of well-being you accept, our lives are at least much worse than we think they are. Hmm. Um, but the other is this argument uh, based on an asymmetry where he says, well, even if our lives are extremely good, it's still better if we had never existed, better for us. And that's because he thinks that there's this asymmetry between pleasure and pain that uh, if you exist, you've got some pleasure and some pain. And again, we can, he's just using those as an example. You, you could fill in anything that you think is good or bad for people. If you exist, you've got some of the good stuff and some of the bad stuff. Um, and the good stuff is good for you and the bad stuff is bad for you. If you don't exist, then you have no bad stuff and no good stuff because there's no you. Right? And he thinks the fact that there's no bad stuff, that you're spared all the bads that you would have experienced if you had existed, that's a good thing. Right? That speaks in favor of not existing. But the fact that you miss out on all the good stuff, that is not a bad thing. Why? Because there's actually no one around to miss out on that stuff, right? So the absence of bad things is always good, but the absence of good things is bad only when there's somebody there to be deprived of it. And that's why not existing always has an advantage over existing. It saves on pain, that's a pro. And sure, it saves on pleasure, but there's nobody to be deprived of that pleasure because there's nobody who exists, right? It's not like there's somebody swimming around in some realm of non-existence, like, oh, all the happiness that I'm missing out. That doesn't happen, right? So Benatar says it's always better not to exist. Hang yeah. on, I'm not quite seeing why that is asymmetry, like the asymmetry there, because with bad things not happening, there's no one to benefit from it. Exactly. This is the, the objection to Benatar. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Is I'm not. A response to that, or like, how does he justify the asymmetry in the first place? Well, sorry, he, could you say that again? Like, okay, like if the argument goes that like if good things don't happen, then like, but like there's no one to be deprived of it. Like, surely the inverse is also true, though. Like, if there if bad things aren't happening, there's no one really to benefit from those bad things not happening because the bad thing those people don't exist to begin with. Yeah. What what I've heard him say is, um, well, you talk about the asymmetry is that you wouldn't exchange three, three hours of the most sublime pleasures imaginable for 30 seconds of the worst tortures imaginable. That, like, I mean, the level of the asymmetry is so strong that... That's a different kind of asymmetry, though, right? That's an asymmetry in uh, 
something about like the strength of the value that somehow bads just get our attention more than goods do. But the asymmetry here is one about an asymmetry of absences, right? The asymmetry is that he thinks the absence of pain or bad things generally is always good, even if there's no one there to benefit from that absence. But the absence of pleasure or good things generally is bad only when there's somebody who is missing out on those pleasures, right? So that's a different claim. And I think your objection, Caitlin, is, 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 is right on. I mean, this is just like, okay, why should we accept this? Because by the same token, there's no one for whom the absence of the, the bad things can be good, right? Um, yeah, Benatar has, well, first of all, why does he think we should accept the asymmetry? He thinks it explains other asymmetries that we already accept. Mm -hmm. So, for example, most people, he thinks, think that uh, the fact that, I don't have any children, so, but they're, let's say, possible children, right, that I could have. If those children had great lives, if I had them, uh, that would not be a very strong reason for me to procreate, he thinks. But if they had bad lives, most of us think that's a really strong reason not to have those children, right? So he thinks, look, my asymmetry explains that. We think that the fact that a future person would be miserable is a reason not to bring them into existence, but the fact that they would be happy is not a reason to bring them into existence, right? Okay, Similarly, yeah. we think it's good that there are no suffering beings on Mars, right. but we don't, think it, we don't lament the fact that there are no happy beings on Mars, mm -hmm. right? So th that's what he, that's his okay. take it or leave it, but he yeah. thinks, look, it's basically like an, an inference to the best explanation. My asymmetry explains these attitudes that we already hold, most of us. Yeah. But that doesn't, I don't think that should stop you from raising your objection because you might still say, well, maybe our attitudes are just wrong well, here. I don't really feel right. like I think much about people, like the existence of people on Mars in like the first place. So, like, uh, I me neither. Why, I'm like, with you. Yeah. Yeah, but that's that's the argument. And then to your objection, he's got this really lame, I think it wins the, <laughs> the worst analogy of all time award. In philosophy, I don't in know, there's a lot of bad There are a lot of bad ones. Okay, well, we'll get a load of this one, and maybe you can suggest uh, something worse. But he says, imagine two people, sick and healthy. Okay, sick, um, gets sick all the time, but has a capacity to recover very quickly. Healthy does not have that capacity, can't recover from illness but never get sick, who would you rather be? Healthy. Yeah, he says, yeah. yeah, you'd much rather be healthy. And he thinks he's making this analogy to existing versus never existing. If you exist, yeah. sure, you've got this happiness in your life, right? That's like the ability to recover quickly from illness. The illness is like the pain in life. But if you never exist, yeah, then you have no happiness to outweigh your pain. But guess what? You don't have any pain in the first place. Right. So being healthy is like being the person who never exists. Uh, worst analogy <laughs> ever. Right. Yeah. Because person has to be like happier somehow or like something like exactly. that. Exactly. Like, yeah. So more than just like getting better from being sick, happiness. Yeah. I completely agree. So <laughs> like, why is it a bad analogy? Is because he's assuming, right? He's analogizing <laughs> the capacity to recover to being happy. Yeah. Which makes it sound as which, if the only good thing about happiness is that it outweighs unhappiness hmm. or, or at least right. serves to it's kind like of neutralize it. But that's kind of, not true, yeah. right? And as a hedonist, I'd be the first to say that happiness well, is not good just because it balances out unhappiness. It's good for its own sake, right? Yeah. 
Although I feel like you do kind of get into like weird things if you're committed to like hedonism with regards to hedonic adaptation, the phenomenon where like no matter what happens to you, you'll just like have a new baseline. So like you win the lottery, you'll be happier for a while and eventually you won't be or something Mm. like that, right? And something terrible happens to you and like you'll be sad for a while, but you'll move back to like wherever you were, right? And so from that standpoint, like you do kind of have some problems as a hedonist, I feel like with regards to like relative changes kind of like being equal number of hedons it seems like uh yeah i'm not sure uh, maybe the implication yeah. is just that one of the ways to make your life better is to have it keep improving right. so that you never yeah yeah i don't know i have to think about that but uh yeah that's um that's benatar for you have you ever talked to him like through email or? I have not. Him? He's actually very hard to reach. Um, mm-hmm. It's hard to I've even find well. a picture of him. <laughs> if you go on his webpage, as I'm sure you've done it at uh, University of Cape Town, uh, everybody else in that department has their email address. For him, you have to go through some intermediary. Yeah, wow. there are no photos of him on the internet. Right, and in fact, there, there are debates with him of, I think there might be one, but I can only guess. It used to be when you search for him, you get pictures of Peter Singer. And then it yes. used to be you get pictures of Dan Dennett. Yep. Um, now there are one or two where I think maybe that's him, but I have no way. No, of there's uh, I've because I've I've scoured, I've scoured, but what, because there 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 well there so there are video debates of him oh, okay. that he's done, and the camera purposefully doesn't show him, right. but shows everybody else in the debate. Yeah, he's cut out. So so he does this like a panel of people, like six people, and, and he's on like, the he's on the edge of the table, and they just show the first five, and you right. and they just like, like pan to the. And they just pan to the audience while he's talking. And that's also wow. happened when he's done debates on veganism. And there, you can know he's in the room and everyone's wa- looking at him because they're all looking at him while he's talking. Yeah. But, Does he say why he cares so much? Uh, he's just intensely private. Yeah. And but it's also the case, as you probably know, that he's received some really nasty uh, mm. threats and mail because of his views about things like antinatalism. Oh, really? I mean, yeah. It, it almost, people are made very uncomfortable by it. Yeah. And you know what happens when people are uncomfortable. Right. They turn into children and they start doing... Yeah. 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 But, what, what all, but, but huh. just what strikes me is just how... how... that he's been able to do that. I want to ask him just, how are you able to make it so that nothing exists of your face on the internet. Yeah, that is really Be- Because I'm assuming that, I mean, he's a professor, he teaches classes, he has a rating on Rate My Professors. People say he's a great professor, which means that I'm assuming that he doesn't teach behind a curtain, yeah. that there are people in a room who can see a human being there, yeah. and no one's ever you know, snapped a photo of him and put it on the internet. That just strikes me as astounding. Maybe culture's different in South Africa, because in America, that could never happen. You know, I mean, there's a famous author, Thomas Pinchon, um, who's tried to do the same thing. And he's actually managed, for the most part, to only allow like three photos of him to leak over the last 40 years of being a writer. But there are those three. For Benatar, there's none. Huh. I mean, that's just amazing to me. <laughs> well, again, maybe, maybe there are one or two, <laughs> yeah. but it's hard, it's hard to know, tell. right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess because if I didn't know what he looked like, I wouldn't know what he looked like. Yeah. But um, th- the only... The only uh, the only inkling that I have is there was one debate where he that he did where he's at the edge of the table and the camera's panning away, but the camera zooms out like just a little too much for about one second, then zooms back in. But it's too he's too far away and too pixelated. You have no idea what what he actually looks like. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. It is impressive um, yeah. <laughs> the extent to which. Somebody who gets that much publicity yeah. has, has managed to avoid having his picture shown. The other, the other hypothesis is that he does have children, and his intensely guarded <laughs> private life is to not distract people by having them realize that he 
is a hypocrite. Oh, I think that that hypothesis is is uh, completely implausible. Mm. Um, unless he's lying through his teeth, because interviewers have asked him point blank, many times, do, do you have kids? And he's always reluctant yeah. to answer because he thinks, look, my person, and, and he's right. His personal things have no bearing. Uh, the, the question in philosophy is always, is the argument any good? Mm-hmm. Not does the person who gives the argument actually believe it or act according to it, right? Um, but under pressure, he has reluctantly said, no, I don't have children. Mm. Um, again, yeah, you can say maybe he's just lying, but uh, I, I <laughs> doubt it. I think he, he really believes this, this view that he's got. He claims to have held it from a very young age. Yeah, because um, he was kind of a savant. I think he became vegan for moral reasons when he was like six years old, and then he argued his parents into it. How old is he? Now? Yeah. Like when was this with regards uh, to the trajectory? I don't know. I I like... think he's born sometime in the seventies, like See, early seventies. Vegan in the seventies, like that's impressive, just on its <laughs> own. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's certainly in his uh, probably fifties wow. now. Huh. I'm sure. Yeah. I, I don't know exactly, but I think I think that's probably not uh, another piece of data that you wouldn't find online. <laughs> <laughs> but I, that's probably a good guess. Yeah. I, because yeah. his father is also a professor at the University of Cape Town, and his oh, information is all there. I didn't know yeah, that. That's interesting. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. Um, in the Department of Bioethics, I believe. Um, oh, okay, that's where Benatar himself is, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nepotism 101. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, if he's your savant, it doesn't matter. But. Yeah, I mean, he is, yeah. he is a very uh, influential. He's done a lot of kind of like hot-button yeah, I'd like to. I'd like to talk to him not about antinatalism because he's talked about it to death. I would like to talk. He wrote a book called "The Second Sexism," yeah, in which he argues that there exists sexism against men. Yeah, in fact, when he writes philosophy papers, I read one once. Um, you know, people sometimes use examples, like they'll just use a letter, like suppose that a, blah yeah. blah blah, uh, and then you've got this question about what pronoun to use, and many people are using she. It's just the, right. the A or the X or whoever the example is is always female. But Benatar, in one of his papers, he writes he, and immediately there's a footnote to it. And the footnote is, for a defense of my use of this pronoun, C, and then he <laughs> references the book, The Second Sexism. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. What does he think is, like, what does he think about the second sexism? Uh, without denying that there are women's issues, he thinks that there are men's issues. Oh, I would agree with that. But yeah, I think a lot of it he harps on about the selective service. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's pretty messed up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're cannon fodder, but women and, aren't. And, yeah. and, and custody of children. Mm. Um, but the, the, the thing that I would actually be curious to also ask him about is, um, I know we're talking about Benatar for a while, but he, I am that's a fan right. of his. So. Yeah. yeah, me too. Um, I don't remember reading this in his books. I just remember see- seeing him like post this in an online forum somewhere, um, where he argues that, you know, if, if whether or not you may know that Jewish people, by and large, vast vast amounts of them, are atheists. They don't believe in God, but they still call themselves Jewish. And he defends that view. Uh, he thinks that you should that Judaism is divorced from belief in God, and I disagree with that. And I'd be curious, but he. I, I don't feel that his reasons were, were fleshed out enough. He tries to say, he says, well, like, look, Christmas is totally divorced from Christianity, you know, and, and he tries to say that, like, the holidays of Judaism, like Passover and Yom Kippur, don't have to have anything to do with God. Um, yeah, I tend to have reservations about that. I, I, don't, I don't think that those hold any water because mm-hmm. um, they're, not, they're not national holidays, you know, in, in America. They're grounded in beliefs about events that you believe to have historically happened in the Torah. 
If, if they were national holidays, would you change your view? Yes. So doesn't that already show that Benatar is in fact correct? He says, he doesn't say that, uh, or at least as I, because I haven't read this, mm -hmm. but as you yeah. explained it, that they can be divorced from religion. They can be divorced from belief in God. And they would be, on your view, if they were national holidays, and they could be national holidays. So, so in fact, they could be divorced from belief in God. Well, let me, so I'll, I'll put it this way. The fact that they're national holidays isn't the only thing that I think is what you need to get it divorced from its religious roots. Uh, because I'm not aware of anything in Christmas that has to do with Christianity as it's practiced by the vast number of people in America. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people are not going to midnight mass. They're not going to service. They're having a party at their own on their house where they're not even praying and they're not referencing a deity. And the gift exchange is not grounded in the Bible, nor is the tree or the stockings or anything like that. Whereas the Passover celebration, the lighting of the menorah is a specific reference to the ex exodus from Egypt of the Jews. And, um, I just don't see how you can get around that. I don't see how you can get around that the candle lighting and the and the um, the celebration of the exodus of the Jews from Egypt has nothing to do with the exodus of the Jews from Egypt. Mm. Well, like, it, I mean, but if they're not thinking about it in that way, or they're just doing it as a tradition, or kind of just what you do, kind of does it really matter how it originated? Well, that's what's so strange to me is that when you, I mean, I've talked to you about this before. I think is that when you, uh, this is my personal background, so that's why I'm interested in this. Uh, is that when you raise a child in a Jewish home in America, the American Jews, by and large, the way it works is when they're children, you will send them to Hebrew school, you will teach them the stories of the Torah, and you will be raised to believe as though it is true. And then when you get older, the parents who are usually atheists will say, to them, well, of, well, of course it's not true. I mean, we, we, taught, we took you to Hebrew school, we got you bar mitzvah, we celebrate these holidays, but I mean, it's not real. I mean, none of it has anything to do with God because God's not real. <laughs> That's what strikes me as so strange about the way <laughs> that, that that religious tradition in particular functions. Um, but uh, you know, I can't I can't seem to uh, gain any ground with uh, the Jewish community in that. Because uh. <laughs> um, when you really press them, unless they're like Orthodox rabbis, I mean, even you, you know, talk to a conservative rabbi, they'll barely say they believe in God. Um, but you talk to an Orthodox rabbi, and you know, they'll say. Yes, this is based in, in truth about the history of the Torah. But if you talk to, you know, the average... Those are distinct, right? I mean, you can... I was going to say this before. You can celebrate these holidays and refer to the historical events that they're based in, like the escape of the Jews from Egypt. And you can say, yeah, the Jews escaped from Egypt, but God doesn't exist and never did, right? So it's not, in that sense, it's just, yeah, we're celebrating a historical event that even an atheist can agree took place. Right? Yes, yes. However, they would also say that the event never happened, <laughs> that okay, the event well, is not a historical okay. event. Yeah. <laughs> so that has less to do with their atheism, though, than with other things. Right? I, su yeah. I suppose if you think that the historical event involved uh, God giving Moses the power to part the Red Sea and so forth, then it strikes me as... Well, that'll be the, you know, the atheist will say, you know, either that just didn't happen, that part of it, or yeah, there was the tides or something else, right? Um, I have no view about this, by <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm just yeah, trying I'm to just, kind of yeah. <laughs> see how, how they can take that, uh, that view that you're referring to, where they're, they're atheists, but they can still celebrate these holidays. And it seems as long as the atheist accepts 
that there was something resembling the historical event reported in the Bible or the Torah, as it may be, right, the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it seems like it's, it's it's at least a coherent position, even if it doesn't have much to recommend it. I, I need to write a more formal paper about it where I address I would look forward exam- to reading that. Yeah, <laughs> I address all my objections. Um, did you have anything else that you wanted to uh, talk about? Uh Tim, is there anywhere where people could go to, to find your work, if they so choose? Uh, well, I can't claim the same level of obscurity as David Benatar, even if I aspire <laughs> to it. Um, uh, my wonderful colleague, Valerie Soon, helped me make a website a little while ago, but I still haven't published it. Um, I don't have social media, so I don't really have selfies, and so the website is just kind of bare. <laughs> um, I do have a page on the, uh, if you go to the Duke Philosophy, uh, the graduate students, uh, you can see me there. And in fact, I want to add some more information there. And if you go on um, the database, Phil Papers, you can find my paper about Epicureanism uh, and the wrongness of killing. But I think it's really only to that extent that I exist on the web <laughs> at this point. Yeah. Are, you, are you wishing to fade into obscurity more? Or do you um, want more people to find you and read your work? <laughs> well, uh, I guess the dream is like for me would be the David Benatar kind of thing where I'm obscure, but my work is, is uh, yeah, widely read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, Tim, I have to say this was an awesome discussion. I mean, I thought I think I thought this was fantastic. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I enjoyed it very much. Yeah. All right, everyone. Uh, thanks for uh, tuning in and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye now.